As a brief reminder, we are in that season of Lent. It began last Sunday, uh, or actually the previous week's Wednesday, uh, but it's going to carry us all the way through Easter. It's that time where we especially focus on that sacrifice of Christ and the mercy he gives to us. And in this season for our church, last week we began the sermon series we're going to be doing, which I've entitled The Wages of Sin recognizing that God is a merciful God, but in Scripture we get some pretty stark glimpses of what our sin truly deserves, and those are the stories we're going to be looking at. Last week, for example, we looked at the story of Sodom and the pull of our hearts toward this earth and the things that we get engaged with which ultimately can lead toward destruction when we are pulled toward that. Before we read our story for this morning, let me make sure that we're in the right historical context so that we can understand it properly. Last week, we were talking about Abraham, and it was to Abraham that God made an incredible promise that I will be your God, and you and your descendants will be my people. It was a promise that Abraham would be blessed with many children, and that God would grant to those descendants a land in which they could call their own. Well, after the third generation from Abraham, his great-grandchildren found themselves in Egypt, fleeing a time of famine and, a famine and need. And they were first welcomed there as honored guests, as Joseph helped to save the nations from that famine. But as time went on, what Joseph had done was forgotten, and those honored guests turned into slaves. And those slaves, after hundreds of years, lifted up a cry to God, whose cry was heard. And under the, the plagues and the exodus, God led them from slavery to that land that he had promised to Abraham. They wandered in the wilderness first to get to that land and then as a punishment because of their lack of faith of entering into that land. But after the whole first generation passed away, save two spies that were believing in the Lord, they finally did cross the Jordan River. The stage one in taking this promised land was the city of Jericho, this large walled city that God miraculously gave them a victory over as they marched around it and then blew the trumpet and the walls fell. It was a triumphant victory and it was a celebration, a recognition that if this is what conquering the land is going to look like, then we are on a good course. That's the story told in Joshua chapter 6, and now we're going to pick up the story in Joshua chapter 7. I'll read all of Joshua chapter 7 into the first two verses of chapter 8. If you haven't found that yet in your pew Bibles, it's found on page 215, or you can follow along with the text as seen on the screen. Again, following the conquest and the destruction of Jericho, we read, But... The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up. And spy out the land. And the men came up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 
3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up and there from the people, and they fled before the, the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their back before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near to your tribes, by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent 
and brought them to Joshua, to all of the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And you see in the footnote, that means trouble. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said, I've entitled this sermon series, The Wages of Sin. And as we begin, let me just ask you to contemplate that question. What are the wages of sin? We face temptations every single day, that pull to do something that we know is in violation to God's commands. And when we do, what difference does that make? Is that a big deal or not? How do we make decisions about the choices that we should make? The very end of our text, we are left with this large pile of stones. And the people knew what lay at the bottom of that pile of stones. And every time they and their descendants passed by this essential monument, knowing what was underneath, how does the knowledge of that change your answer and your thoughts about the wages of sin and your desire to fight against the temptations that will come your way? Well, as I said from the very beginning, the end of chapter 6 is just a wonderful high note. Everything went better than planned. Jericho, this first city, has been destroyed, and they are excited. God is leading us into this promised land, and we are going to see something incredible, city by city. And yet, at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 7, we, the reader, get a hint that not all was right. Back in Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, the Lord had given this command, and the city, Jericho, and all that it has within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest, when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. 
But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. That was the command of chapter 6, but in verse 1 of chapter 7, we learn that that command was not obeyed. And as a result, the verse says, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. We know that there has been sin. We know that the command was not obeyed, but Joshua doesn't. Israel hasn't been told and so, when Jericho is now destroyed, their eyes, set their, their, their eyes get set to what is next. And what is next is the city of Ai. And unlike Jericho, Ai is a smaller city. So just a, a couple of spies are sent out, and they look, and they give the report, you know, we only need two, maybe 3,000 people to go. And without consulting with God or getting a direct command from God, an issue that is debatable to the extent of how important that becomes and what happens next, Joshua leans on the more conservative side and he sends 3,000 troops to the city of Ai, where they are quickly turned away. And where 36 of them lose their lives, they fail in taking the next city. It's the only time in Joshua when a military failure is mentioned. It's the only time when Israelites are mentioned as dying in battle, even though the number might be small. And as a result, it says that the Israelites' hearts are melted and the people, and they become like water. And the question is, how did this happen I thought God was leading here. Why did we fail? And that's exactly what Joshua asks. He goes and he prays to God. And in his prayer, basically, Joshua accuses God of being the one of failing in this. God, if you were going to just let us be defeated by our enemies, you should have left us on the other side of Jericho. What's going to happen to us and to your name as we, if we are constantly going to be attacked and if we are going to lose? Just as a bit of an early aside and a comment, how often do we do that as well? Troubles come to us in our lives. We have struggles and we have failures. And we turn to God immediately. We say, God, why are you doing this to us? Why haven't you opened up these doors? And we ask that and we accuse. All the while, the fault is our own. Because that's where we know is the fault and what happens. And that's what Joshua quickly learns. God says, get up. It's not me who has failed. It is you. You have sinned. God had promised to be faithful and would continue to be. But if this was going to be about God and his conquest of this land, if these were to be his people, different from anyone else, and if this was about him guiding them to take on these blessings, then they had to be God's people. They had to listen and obey him step by step, every step along the way. And since and since the command, the reference earlier to them disobeying God had taken place, we are told in verse 12, Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs from their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. 
I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things among you. If you're not going to act differently from the other nations that you're about to take over, then I can't treat you differently from those nations. But right away, that's one of those areas that sounds a little bit harsh to us. A little bit much. And let me just start by a little bit of an initial uh, example for many of you that might be able to relate to. I know we have a lot of business owners in this congregation and you have employees. Now, just imagine that your employees, while they are on the clock representing your company, are not representing you well. They are rude and disrespectful to your customers. They are acting completely inappropriate in their language, language and in their conduct. And they're literally stealing from you, taking your profits and pocketing them for themselves. How long are you going to keep that in person in employment? Not long at all. If they are representing you, your business, your name, your company, they must represent you well. Now, I know that all examples and illustrations are not perfect, and that isn't a good analogy, but that gets a hint of why this is important. These were to be God's people representing him in this new land. And if they were not going to do that, then God could not bless their work. So having had the trouble exposed, it was now time to expose the troublemaker. A call went out for the people to consecrate themselves, to prepare. And then the people were gathered together and they were divided by lots, first by tribe, then by clan, then by household, then by family, and then by individual. A whole amount of time, step by step, where Achan could have stepped up and said, Stop. I've done this. I'm the guilty one. But he lets all of those opportunities go by until he is forced to confess. Now first, a little thing that's kind of interesting to note is that as we hear of the tribe and the clan and the household that Achan came from, we recognize he's got good lineage. He's got good standing. The tribe of Judah were supposed to be the leaders in many ways. And nevertheless, despite his family connections, he is a sinner. And then when finally confronted and forced to confess, he does say, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. I don't think none of any of us have to work too hard to put ourselves in the shoes of Achan and recognize the, the struggle that he had. Here they were after the fall of Jericho. The walls had just collapsed. There is chaos and people moving everywhere. The battle is engaged and all of a sudden there it is in front of him. This beautiful cloak. A little bit of silver, a little bit of gold. A small amount that he could easily tuck away and, and nobody else would recognize it. And yet, even though it's a little bit amount, it, it can be a life-changing amount of money that would provide for his family. And as he says, he coveted. 
and he took it. And in doing that, he, I believe, was giving himself in to some of the biggest lies about sin and temptation that we tell ourselves. He gave in to that lie that it's, it's not that big of a deal. All of the, the other places where silver and gold and bronze and other things that were going to be discovered in this pile of, of rubble in Jericho, all of that was going to be given to God. What's the big deal if this little amount that he's able to put into his pockets disappears? Who's going to know? And it's not that much of an issue. And I already actually just slipped a little bit in giving into that other big lie that we told ourselves is, who is going to know? And it isn't a big deal if you can get away from it. When facing temptations, far too often the crux about the choice that we make is not based on, is this right or is this wrong? Instead, when facing temptation, the crux of how we make the choice usually hinges on this question, can I get away with it? Or do I think I'm going to get caught? If I think I can get away with it and no one's going to see me and I can lie my way or hide my way out of it, then I'll go forward with it. But if I worry that someone else is around and their eyes are on me or I won't be able to cover my tracks, then I won't do it. It's not a matter of right or wrong. It's whether or not I'll be exposed in what I did that I know is wrong. And Achan makes the wrong choice. He assumes that no one in the chaos of what is going on and in the struggle and all of the battle that he can get away with this sin and so he takes it. And in knowing it was a sin, in knowing it was wrong, he hides it. And again, another thing that we do, if you're telling lies or you're hiding it, it's an admission that you know what you did was wrong. And while he might have hidden it from the eyes of people, his actions don't go unnoticed by God. If and when the truth of this then gets exposed... All that this is going to happen is have a, a cancer that would go throughout the whole community. Now, instead of people fighting for the glory of God and for the good of the nation, they're going to be fighting for their own prosperity, their own selfish gain, and their own personal benefit. And again, ultimately, if the people were not totally submitted to the guidance and direction of God, but were willing to intentionally disregard his commands then this whole project was purposeless and going nowhere. Then the people would be using God for their benefit rather than serving God for his glory. And so this sin now exposed has to be dealt with. Achan's confession comes far too late. The truth of the matter is quickly discovered and all of Achan's possessions and his whole family all his belongings and his animals included are brought before the camp and before God, and the judgment is pronounced. All Israel stoned him with stones. 
They burned him with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Earlier, when the Israelites had miraculously crossed the Jordan River, Joshua had set up some stone pillars as a memorial, as a reminder of the great things that God had done in leading the people to this point. And now, in some many ways, a whole new monument has been built. Another reminder and a memorial that if we do not follow God properly, this is going to be the path of destruction, and this is, will be our end. The effects of this are laid out. First of all, in verse 26, we now learn that the sin having been dealt with and the justice been in, poured out, we are told that the Lord turned from his burning anger. And then, because of this cleansing, God now would go forward and does. Not only is Ai defeated and the conquest continued, but in the battle with Ai, we learn that Achan had just been impatient. Because the spoil of Ai was now given to the people. God wanted to bless the people, and he would. But Achan had been too impatient in waiting for that blessing. But let's look at, at some of the hardships of this text, because this is another hard one. God pours out this very harsh and broad punishment against Achan for a rather small, in many ways, rebellion against him. Isn't this literally a bit of an overkill by God? 36 men in battle losing their lives, his children, sons and daughters and animals also being killed. But I think if we ask those types of questions, we expose much of our views of sin and answering that questions of the wages of sin. We expose the fact that we think sin isn't that big of a deal. Why does God have to go so overboard in dealing with this little petty theft. But it's stories like these that reveal the wages of sin. And it reveals how sin destroys our relationship with God. We go all the way back to the very beginning. Human beings were created to live in relationship with God, to enjoy that relationship, to serve him and love him and allow him to love them in return. But every time we sin, we look at the creator of the universe and the God who gave you life and we say, you know what? I'm preferring my way to your way. I know better and I prefer the momentary pleasures of this decision over what you say is right and what is good. And every time we do that, we reject our creator, we turn our back on him, we spit in his face and we say, I know better. And obviously that destroys our relationship with the great holy, righteous, and perfect God who made you. And we think about that sometimes in our temptations. But oftentimes, I don't know if we also think about how much our sin destroys us. Our God is a good God. 
Our God does love us, and so when he gives commands and decrees and guidance, it's not to just say, okay, let me make up this rule and see how they handle it and if they're willing to obey. Instead, his commands are given for a purpose, for the purpose of his glory, but also for our good. And the reality is that God, as I said, does want to bless you and to have, allow you to have a good life. That's why he gave his commands. And it's in obedience where blessing and prosperity and a good life lie, not in rebellion and rejection. And I think we often forget how much we harm ourselves when we're willing to turn our back on our God. But the other thing is highlighted in our children's message that this story definitely brings out is not only does sin hurt our relationship with God and even harm ourselves, but it hurts our communities. Sin is a, a cancer that infects our households. And when you start lying to your parents, when you start deceiving your spouse, when you start hiding things from your children, you are creating an environment and home of deception and distrust, and that erodes that home. Within the church, you can come and you can sing the songs and you can hear all of the messages, but if we go and live in contradiction to that, then we are not about the business of building the kingdom of God. Rather, we are contradicting it and fighting against it. And the mission of the church is hindered when one or a few sin. And people look and say, well, if that's what it means to be a Christian, why do I need to go to church? Why do I need to surrender my life to God? And that can be expanded to the whole nation. We see examples of it all of the time when laws are not respected or, or enforced. And people look and they say, well, if that person's getting away with that, well, then why can't I get away with what I want to get away with? And now society itself continues to erode and decay. Sin doesn't just harm our relationship with God. It doesn't only harm ourselves, but sin destroys whole communities. And again, if our eyes are open, we recognize that over and over again. And that is why it has to be dealt with. That is why it has to be judged. But in Lent, this is where we also pause. And we praise God for the fact that there is an answer and a pathway forward provided for us in Christ. Again, remember the monument that was built over Achan and his possessions. And remember every time, imagine every time the Israelites walking past that pile of stones and then later themselves finding themselves in a situation where they are tempted to disobey God. With that pile there, how does that affect your view of sin? Achan paid the price for what he had done. He was worthy of that justice. And in seeing Achan, all of us have to also admit that's exactly what we deserve. 
that if we were treated as our sins deserve, there would be a pile of rocks laying over each and every single one of us because we have all disobeyed God. But then we get to the New Testament and we hear the story of Jesus Christ who himself never once was tempted, never once did the wrong thing, never once hid his actions from others. He lived in perfect obedience, and yet, as that perfect God, he was willing to sacrifice himself. And he bore himself and gave himself to die a terrible death of capital punishment upon a cross where his body was given and his blood was shed and he took the wrath of God on himself so that you could be forgiven. And the resurrection that took place on the third day only proves his power and the Lord accepting his sacrifice and giving to you grace so that you not only don't get what you deserve, that pile of stones over you, but you get called righteous and clean and pure and invited to go out and represent the Christ who died for you. And we don't have a pile of stones that we look to to remember that. We've got a cross. And every time we look at that cross, the question is, if that is what sins cost, well, how should I look at sin and face temptation? In both ways, the hope is the answer the same. A, a pile of rocks but especially the cross, if that's the cost of sin, then I want to run away from it as far as I can. I want the best relationship with my creator as I can have. I want to live the kind of life of blessing that he promises to us in obedience. And I want to be in communities that are going forth and building the kingdom and proclaiming the great hope of Jesus Christ to a world that needs to hear it and will be excited to say, yes, if that is what following Christ looks like, I want a part of that. What are the wages of sin? Cost the life of our Savior. But thanks be to God that gives us a new life. And the great hope is that when we look at temptations and face them, we would know in light of what this sin costs, I want to respond in gratitude to my God and serve him with every being I have. In light of that, use this as an invitation to confession. A time where you go before that God of grace and say, I have sinned. I'm the guilty party. And I don't want to break faith with you any longer. I want to live for you and know your forgiveness. And you can say that to God in prayer. And I would invite you that if there's something that you want to be cleansed of, to tell somebody else, myself or an elder or a friend that you trust, so that you can know the forgiveness given to us in Jesus Christ. And then be free to go and live for him in obedience and faith. Well, with those challenges, let's turn to our God with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we put our 
ourselves in the situation of the Israelites once again, we can only imagine what it was like to walk past those stones and remember what the cost of sin was and how that encouraged them then to live in obedience to you. And yet we know that very often they would walk past those stones and yet engage in choices and activities very much like their ancestor Achan. And as soon as we recognize that in them, we have to confess that we know that of ourselves. We know that we have looked at what is appealing in the moment. And we knew it was wrong, but instead of making the choice on whether it was right or wrong, we make the choice on whether we feel like we're going to get caught or exposed. Lord, forgive us of our sins. And we name them before you. Generally, sins of selfishness, greed, and pride. Specifically, times when we have done what your commands clearly say is wrong. And in so doing, it has harmed our relationship with you. It has harmed ourselves. It has harmed the communities that we are a part of. But thank you for the path forward. That in confessing our sins, you are faithful and just. And in Jesus Christ, you will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, thank you for the cross. And how we do not get what our sins deserve, but you give to us forgiveness and grace and mercy. And we turn again to that cross of mercy, asking that you will transform the very people that we are. That we would die with you and, and that we would be raised with you to a whole new life where we stand in opposition to the temptations that come our way. And so, Lord, for all of us, as we face the temptations that will come our way this week, may we remember the wages of sin. And as we look to the power of the cross, may it motivate us to live for you and serve you in all that we do because of all that you have done for us. And it is the name of Jesus Christ that we pray this. Amen.